Hello, I'm Frank Turner. Welcome to Tales from No Man's Land, a podcast that accompanies my album, No Man's Land. It's about 13 women from history who you probably haven't heard of, but definitely should have. Their stories are fascinating, moving, funny, and most importantly, worth celebrating and sharing. They buried my body on Christmas In the ground by the South River Bank Worked to my death for my very last breath I had the Winchester bishops to thank Welcome back everybody to Tales from No Man's Land Most of the songs on my album focus on just one woman but this story is about a group of women, it's slightly different I do a lot of history walking in my spare time around London, it's one of my passions. And on one of my walks in an area called Southwark, which is on the south bank of the River Thames, I stumbled on this magic place that was called the Crossbones Graveyard. It's also known as the Graveyard of the Outcast Dead. And he meets me in the graveyard, the graveyard where they made my bed. Plants a white flower under cold stars on the grave of the forgotten dead. It's a truly weird and remarkable place. I mean, just for starters, with a name like that, you can't really not pay attention to it. Uh, And as you walk along, on the railings around the place, there are hundreds of locks and ribbons and tributes that really draw the eye and make you want to find out what this place is and what it's about. So I walked over and I started reading about how this was a recently rediscovered mass grave for women who'd worked in the medieval sex trade. Uh, And most bitterly, they technically worked in the sex trade as employees of the medieval church, And after a lifetime of that kind of work, they'd then been buried in unconsecrated ground because of the work they'd been doing for the church, which for me is bitterly ironic. Over time, the grave had been forgotten and slums were built on top of it and it slipped out of popular memory. Uh, But in the late 20th century, uh, when they were extending the Jubilee underground line, it was rediscovered and has since been turned into a memorial garden. So I went down there on a sunny spring day to meet John Constable, who is a writer who's written plays and poems inspired by these women in the graveyard. And he's one of the people who led the drive to rediscover the place and turn it into a memorial garden. Uh, His work often features two main characters, the goose and the crow. The goose is the ghost of one of the women who was buried there, and the crow is his sort of shamanistic alter ego. Uh, So I went down to talk to John, and we had a wonderful conversation about the graveyard of the outcast dead. So I'm here on a lovely spring afternoon in Southwark at the Crossbones Graveyard, and I'm joined by John Constable, the author and playwright and poet and shaman and mystic, should we say, um, who has written extensively about this area and indeed about the Crossbones Graveyard. Hi, John. How are you? Hi, Frank. It's good to have you here. Thank you so much for letting us in. I've been here before and I've never been in, so I'm already standing on new ground. Um, so do you want to just start by telling us about how you came across the graveyard and your, your experience of it? Yeah, well, the short version is uh, I had a vision. So I was doing some experimental writing. Uh, This is the lead up to the millennium. And I wanted to write something about my neighborhood, Mm. which happens to be roughly 2000 years old. So it seemed a good idea. And I'd done a lot of research. I'd come across the Winchester geese, these women who worked in licensed brothels that were owned by the church. And I I was attracted to that kind of character. Mm. But on the night of the 23rd November 1996, it was as if this character took on a life of her own and in fact another character I've been working with a kind of alter ego called John Crow and it was as if the goose took John Crow on a dance through history through time and space Mm -hmm. and showed me all kinds of 
what she called her secret history. But the key to it all was here at Crossbones, which at the time I didn't even know existed. But I, I came here in the middle of the night and in fact sang a song at the gates, which were oh, then lovely. the old industrial iron gates. Was it a park at the time? Or Not at it... all, no. It was a, a very desolate site. It, right. They'd just built the Jubilee Line electricity substation. This was right. when they extended the Jubilee Line. This is actually what drives those trains. Right. Uh, and, uh, you know, they say if you want to um, raise the dead, you dig up their bones. But yeah. <laughs> in this case, they, they put giant electromagnets right down there in their bones. Which, so which will certainly they raise did the, the dead. Job. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> did you know that this was the graveyard at the time or was there, was there a memorial information here already? There was nothing. At, I mean, it really was a, a, a dump. Right. A really pretty brutal dump. Uh, but something in the goose, in this spirit, was saying to me, this is a, a sacred place. It was only after I'd written the poem. In the middle of the poem, the goose says, uh, well, we know how the carrion crow doth feast in our crossbones graveyard. And I thought that was the first time I'd heard the words and right. that I'd invented this graveyard for my character. Yeah. Within a, a month or so, I'd been to the local studies library, right. come across references to this graveyard, and that Crossbones was believed to have been the same as the single women's churchyard mentioned by John Stowe in uh, 1598. And this was a, an old piece of history that had become long buried. I'd never heard it. Yep. And as far as I know, the story of Crossbones had been totally lost. Okay. So it sort of revived itself through me and my work and then I as always with these things when you start to follow a line you start to find other people and and the poem as I say all written in verse seemed to just flow out of me I was led by the rhyme and the rhythm as you often are when of you course, write a song yeah. you don't necessarily have a master plan but yeah yeah those, you those, know that's where the best of writing is when you lose control of the cart as it goes down the hill that's exactly what this was like and more than it had ever been for me before wonderful so I was literally following these verses, which were taking me to places I wasn't even sure I wanted to go. But um, by the end of the, that night, I had a, a long, long poem that almost felt as if it was found. In fact, I had a lot of anxiety, not only that I'd gone completely mad, but that maybe I'd somehow plagiarised this poem because maybe it already existed and I'd learnt it as a kid or something. It felt that... Complete. Have it's, you ever had that yeah, feeling? Yeah, well, it's f the famously um, Paul McCartney's relationship with the song Yesterday. Legend has it he woke up within his head and it was so completely fully formed that he was convinced it was a song by someone else and spent six months playing it to everybody he knew and saying, what is this song and where have I nicked it from? And everybody just said... I've no idea that's an amazing song. And, of course, off the back of that, after you know, it becomes one of the biggest songs in the world, there are plenty of people who've claimed that it was actually right. their song. But it's, it's nonsense. It's not true. But, yeah, absolutely. I mean, in a way, I feel like the greatest art is the stuff that it feels like you, you find rather than yes. write. You know, the, what I love about early Dylan records for me is that it feels like he uncovered a chest somewhere full of ancient songs that he just kind of dusted off and presented to the world. And how it is that this 20-year-old kid from Minnesota did this remains one of the greatest mysteries of music history to me. Well, there were a few, weren't yeah, there? Old yeah. English folk songs found well, their way. Well, this, this is true. There are moments of pleasure to in this early work. That is true. Um, but still, you know, the, yeah, those moments when, yeah. it, when it just feels like somebody is feeding you your lines rather than you're kind of consciously thinking up a good rhyme or a rhythm. So this was a, a huge example of right. that, and which is why I allowed it ultimately to take mm. over my life and kind of 
use it as my guidebook, my magic, sure. almost my grimoire for, for the work sure. here at Crossbones. Wonderful. Well, should we take a, a walk into the graveyard? And let's we, do that. We're, so we're, we're entering through a, a wooden sort of... Uh, the goose wing, we call the it. The goose wing, Frank. okay. Yep. You can probably oh, and, see and it is a goose wing. It is it's a wooden goose like wing. shaped like a goose. It's made I of see. wood. Yeah. Kind of cloistered entrance by Arthur de Mowbria, right. an artisan. Okay. And uh, I'll just show you a few features, if I may. Please do. We, uh, yes, I'd love you to. Wander in. So just on your, just as we go in, we've got a shed we call the Clink after the Clink Prison. Right, which of has co- been here since time immemorial. And Indeed. It's, and it's the Liberty of the Clink around it, here. Exactly right. right. This is the Liberty of the Clink was this area outside the law of the city, ruled over by the Bishop of Winchester. And, and it's where things that were forbidden or discouraged in the city, which included, of course, the world's oldest profession, but also included theatre. So, yeah, because uh, more broadly, you know, the cities are, generally speaking, London is a north of the Thames encampment, shall we say? Indeed. And, and Southwark has always been the place where the city sort of dumps its undesirable activities. Exactly and right. on the other side of the only bridge until the 19th century, I think I'm right in saying. Uh, London Bridge. Uh, yeah, maybe late 18th century. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. it's still, yeah, that's, it's, it it's, is. It's so, that period. Yeah, so there would be, as you say, your actors and your prostitutes and, and gambling and bear pits and all that kind of thing Indeed. would all be in, in Southwark and the prisons. All of that. All of that, All the yeah. foul trades. Sounds like the kind of place I want to hang out. <laughs> well, it's what attracted me back in the... Yeah. I moved here in 1986. Right, OK. When it was still pretty rough. It were, you, you know, the legendary days where taxi drivers would say, south of the river, mate. No yeah, way. sure, sure. OK, but and it's, it's changed, changed a lot since it's then. It's changed a lot and but it's so, changing still. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I sort of feel like my experience with Southwark has been quite recent and, and we'll get into that, but it's definitely the stories that, about that kind of period of London history are, are sort of wild to me. Uh, but so, yeah, so we have the clink here so, named yeah, off the and, prison. And, you know, every church has its gargoyle and we, our gargoyle is the Bishop of Winchester. <laughs> and you can see there, so the water comes down and spits out of his mouth. It spits onto the goose's back, but like right. water off a duck's bag, yep. uh, this this flows through gutters yep. down into a pond, oh, where I'm pleased to say that only about a month ago I saw seven frogs are spawning. Oh, lovely. So That's it's wonderful. a very alive place as lovely. well. That's important yeah. to say. But let's walk in, Let's Frank, walk through, yeah. Uh, under this lovely cloister. As we walk, you can see one of my poems uh, here, um, Cut Above the Door, carved yeah. by Arthur. Right. Uh, maybe I could just say it to you as Please we walk do. in. I'd this is, that. by the way, the poem we say at every single vigil. Right. And we'll come to the vigils, but they're held on the 23rd of every month at 7 o'clock. Amazing. And we have a few very simple rituals. One, we tie ribbons to the gate. Yes. Sometimes with the names of the dead here or our Mm. own loved ones. And as we do that act, we say, here lay your hearts, your flowers, your book of hours, your fingers, your thumbs, your miss you mums. Here hang your hopes, your dreams, your might have beens, your locks, your keys. Your mysteries. It's beautiful. And we go in. And we go in. I my first experience of the graveyard was um, so I, walking London sort of history routes is a thing that I do with my spare time. And uh, I was walking around Southwark following a little guidebook, and I came across the locks and the ribbons on the gate over there, um, which you can't really miss when you're walking down Red Cross Way. That's true. Um, and uh, immediately was wondering what it was. And there's a wonderful sign outside which explains some of the history uh, of the graveyard. And my attention was immediately grabbed you know I, I was what is this place what, what on earth is going on here and then of course you find out so broadly speaking this is a graveyard of unconsecrated ground yes um in which uh the winchester geese who were the prostitutes working in the stews 
Um, Stews being the brothels, yes. Yes, Stews being the brothels, which are owned by the Bishop of Winchester. So you have this irony of these women working in a sort of unholy, unclean trade, but their effective employer is a bishop. And not just that, the Bishop of Winchester, which is where I'm from, which was one of the things that tweaked me on this. And then they're buried in unconsecrated ground. I have to say, Frank, this is what we would say where legend and history meet in this age of fake news. Uh, (laughs) But, I mean, there's a lot of truth. I mean, certainly the Bishop of Winchester had authority here. There were ordinances that governed the women who worked in the brothels, who became known as the Winchester geese. I mean, that term is used by Shakespeare. There is no proof that that place was this place. Okay. Except that as early... I've come across references in the... Uh, I believe, early 19th century that certainly say the single women's churchyard now known as Crossbones. Right. And this has been known as Crossbones. So this is, to some extent, through my own work, some of the connections came about. It's funny that uh, we've had many people looking to develop the site and one of them employed some um, surveyors to to try and prove that this wasn't uh, that crossbows. Obviously, it's all lost in the mist of time, so it wasn't that successful. But we had fun at the gate saying during one of the vigils, we said, um, well, if it wasn't then... It is now. <laughs> and that I, is the feel of it. So, mm. But yes, it is. It's, it's part legend, part history. Sure. But it, So when they were building the Jubilee Line extension through here, they found a number of skeletons, correct? That's right. Yeah. You see, the graveyard had closed in 1853. So by that time, there's no question, it was very well established as a pauper's graveyard. Right, OK. For what was then one of the poorest parts of London, you know, mm. an area where the police were afraid to come on their own. Sure. Where there was endemic cholera and typhoid and, and massive overcrowding, huge child mortality. So more than half of the estimated 15,000 burials here mm. are children. So that gives you an idea sure. of the poverty here. Yeah. Were there dates on the bodies that have been found here? And, there um, are burial date range? records, which right. I went okay. into a, uh, mm-hmm. at one point. Even they are very sketchy. They don't even specify crossbones because okay. this was under the generality of St. Saviour's, which is Southwark Cathedral, yes. of course, now. Yeah. The formerly the Church of St. Mary Overy. Yes. Beautiful part of our mythology. And as we walk north, on our right-hand side is the Jubilee Line Extension Electricity Substation. Yes, a beautiful piece of architecture. A beautiful piece of work. <laughs> a large stone square And, um, But what was effectively, when they built this, of course, they dug up 148 skeletons, the Museum of London Archaeologists. It's generally accepted that many more bodies were removed by contractors in a slightly dubious manner. Okay. And these are things that haven't been forgotten. They were things in a way that helped, I think, wake up the graveyard. Sure. uh, And alert some of us to try and come to its protection. So what you have here is the land that was left, the remaining part of the graveyard. The archaeologists dug a couple more trenches. There's one on our left here, a long trench running north-south. And that's where one of the security guards, who was meant to be keeping us out actually started work on the invisible garden. So in this sort of gash in the earth, yeah. he allowed a wild garden to be cultivated. Oh, and, lovely. And that's tended. A, that's a, what, good work, him. Yeah. Well, a, a lot of what's happened at Crossbones has not happened as a, a top-down project. Sure. It's been really grassroots, really Wonderful. small little groups and networks of activists, mm-hmm. security guards going naked, <laughs> going native, going naked. <laughs> well, uh, probably a bit of that too, in fact. Yeah, yeah. It's at quite midnight. a tantric place. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Let's walk on yeah. further. Well, on, on our left here, you can see a pyramid 
with oyster shells on it. Oysters, right. of course, were once the food of the poor. And this is the work of our so-called invisible gardener. He was living on here mainly to keep people out, but every 23rd he would hear us at the gates yeah. envisioning a garden. And eventually he made contact with me and brought me on and showed me that he'd begun work on a garden here. Yeah. Turned out he'd been Vivian Westwood's gardener oh, wow. originally. Yes. Okay. Some of the friends of Crossbones worked with him Sure. Sometimes against him. It was always a. <laughs> this has always been, as I say, a, a crooked path rather than a yeah, straight sure, line. Sure, but that which feels. We love that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> my original vision of the goose, which really transformed my whole way of seeing my area, happened on the twenty-third of November. 1996. And from then on, the number 23 kept reoccurring uh, in ways that it seemed to be significant. I was aware that it was already a number of chaos magic, very important in the works of William Burroughs and Robert Anton Wilson. But it seemed to manifest here at Crossbones in a very particular way, a very positive way. So this number has always been an important date. And so um, when we wanted to hold vigils, we'd started a shrine at these industrial gates every Halloween. And after 13 Halloweens, we'd created this beautiful shrine. And it looked lovely for a few months after Halloween. Yeah. And then it would look sad. So on the 23rd of June 2004, we held the first vigil for the outcast, dead and alive. At 7pm, we meet at the gates here, in the street, so that the graveyard is empty, right. or rather, full of the dead. Sure. And we yeah. are the other side in the street, in a sense, in a communion. So we yeah. very much have turned this gate from what was once just an industrial gate into a shrine, and we'd even say a portal. You know, and, and when I use words like that, as I say, we're not talking about a belief system that you have to subscribe to. It's more an imaginative sure. idea. Yeah. Oh, can we have a communion with the dead? And if yeah. we do, what happens? One of the things I, I find fascinating about this and that I love is this idea that there is as much history in a wasteland like this as there is in Th Southern Cathedral, which is a place of great history. Of course it of is. Course you it know, is. William Shakespeare's brother is buried there. And which I and have a great love for. <clears> and in fact, yeah. in, in the course of our work, we've developed a strong connection with yeah. Southern Cathedral. The Southern Mysteries was performed there twice. Yeah. And also recently, over the last four or five years, the Dean of Southern Cathedral has come and stood right where we're standing now to perform an act of regret, which is right. not re-consecrating the churchyard which i think would have been controversial after sure. all these years but it's an act of unconditional blessing sure. in which the church expresses its regret for its that's wonderful bad pastoral yeah, care yeah. for the women of yeah. Bankside. and i <laughs> yeah. think that's very beautiful i think i think it's absolutely wonderful as i was saying earlier one of one of the things i find most kind of like dramatically gripping if not sort of bitterly ironic about it is the fact that you have these women working in this trade who are technically employed by the church which seems like a dereliction of their kind of moral and scriptural duty on some level. But it's it, but certainly, a, it's a big aspect of it. I mean, obviously, I, you, you're kind enough to let me hear the song in advance. <laughs> I think your song really picks up on that, that yeah. raw wound of it, yeah. which, of course, I can relate to. From reading the Southwark Mysteries, you've probably seen, sometimes it's quite nuanced, though. Yeah. On occasions, the goose will say, I call upon my bishop as defender of my liberty. Yeah. There's that sense of him as a protector as well. Sure, yeah. And, yeah. and when you look at how attempts to have legal red light districts one of the great principles of course is that you give proper protection to sex workers you allow them yeah. to say 
what they right. need rather than preach at them. Right, which from my reading and from mostly reading of your work, that, so the ordinances that were put forward uh, about the liberty of the clink in the 1100s, thereabouts, um, you know, I was interested to read that, in fact, most of what they involved was at least on some levels, if not outright protection, at least regulation of the work of sex workers in a way that sort of was was oddly quite modern, shall we say. I, w- I totally agree. I, I think it's astonishing some of the... Uh, thinking, really, particularly relating to trafficking. Um, My favourite ordinance, you probably noticed because I quoted it at the front of the book, (laughs) but it it says that the woman shall have free licence and liberty to come and go as she pleases without interruption of the stew holder. So that is a definite law against a brothel keeper holding a woman against her will. And it says earlier in that ordinance that provided she pay her dues you know yeah. so she pays her rent <laughs> yes yeah, sure and then she she's she's like a freelancer yeah right which is as i say that seems quite sort of like progressive in its way um certainly for something that happened nearly a thousand years ago i think which... it is and, and it's interesting frank that you know at the vigil and at, at our halloween events we've always had a lot of involvement and participation from contemporary sex workers right yeah one thing i'd say that's really important at the vigils we've had 10 or more over the years different sex workers speak Mm. at least I can think of one who had a truly cautionary tale you know of abuse and rape and 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 drug dependency and it was a you know a a true horror story and has to be respected of course equally the other nine tended to be mostly women also a couple of male sex workers who all said this is what I've chosen sure and actually, I find it less exploitative, several people have said, than my previous job. Sure, right. You know, okay. uh, a lot of, I think this is it in our culture. Once sex enters into it, exploitation, of course, takes a, a whole other twist in our minds. And we can't always look, perhaps, at the realities of exploitation. What is it that is exploitation? Well, obviously, coercion, the removal of consent. Yeah. This happens, of course, in lots of aspects of life. Of course. And we don't notice it. I feel just standing here, there's, it's just a place of meaning in some way. Do you know what I mean? There's just a, a sense as you stand in this area, or even stand at the gates, that there's something more profound than just standing on a Southwark street to be here. I think that's right. I think it is a place that, well, that speaks to us. We've been campaigning for, as I say, 23 years now for this place. And people say, well, how do you sustain that? And of course, there's incredible roller coaster ride during that time. And we have some very low points as well as high points. Sure. But there is always, we come back to, it knows what it wants. We'll say that. The goose knows <laughs> the what goose she knows. wants. Yes. Yeah. And Crossbones knows what it is. Yeah. And despite the best efforts of people to impose master plans on it, <laughs> the years have proved that it will be what it wants to be. And I still believe that. This land, of course, is owned by Transport for London. They're about to develop the adjoining land here. Right. It's going to be a huge development. Okay. After years of you know campaigning and talking to them, we have got an agreement that they will protect Crossbones Graveyard as a garden of remembrance. Amazing. The details of how that is to be done, of course, will contain a few devils. Of course. But that's to be expected, <laughs> isn't it? I-, I think there will be a sense for a while that people won't sense the magic quite as vividly as we are now. All around us, as we see, we see the shard and the buildings towering from the other side of the Thames there. We can still at the moment see a little bit of the Tower of Southwark Cathedral. That'll disappear when the next development comes. So all of that impacts on this place. In another way, when the shard appeared, the meaning of this garden, I think, revealed itself even more intensely Mm. as this wild DIY 
memorial garden for outcasts. Yeah. A wild place in the very heart of the city, yeah. in the belly of the beast. This is what I think Crossbones is really about. It is yeah. a place that has this wild feminine DIY energy, this sense that it somehow comes out of people sure. rather than being passed down to them by the yeah. powers that yeah, be. Yeah, yeah, it's emergent rather than sort of dictated. And and so this will to some extent change over the next three few years. Yeah. But I think it's looking to people, including your good self, yeah. to ensure that it does keep the magic and above all keep something of the power of yeah. the outsider. Absolutely. I mean, outsiders... Let's be honest, we don't have much. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, one of the things in writing the song, which I will play later, um, uh, here. here, which I'm so excited to do, by the way, because I cannot think of a place that it deserves to be played more than where it's written about. But, um, you know, I'm, I'm obviously a man, as are you. This whole album I have, which is about historical female figures, um, in some of them I'd take a second-person approach and some of them a third-person approach. To write from a first-person approach from a woman's point of view was something that I, I was hesitant to do, should we say, because I'm obviously aware of the... The, the risk of being seen to kind of like appropriate people's voices Indeed. and that kind of thing. Um, but at the same time, I, I, I hope that I've tried quite sensitively to, as we're talking about now, to see it from the point of view of one of the women who had worked here. There's a defiance and there's a there's a kind of self-assertion in there that I wanted to really emphasise, you know, and that reclamation of individual, like, worth, you know what I mean? And it's not, they shouldn't just be nameless corpses in a graveyard that's built over by a substation. They should be people that we remember as individuals. I'm with you there. I mean, the thing is, Frank, as artists and, and as people we're always projecting mm. ourselves onto others of course and when we come here at the vigil to remember the outcast dead of course we're doing it a lot for ourselves yes and that's really important i think to be honest about this yeah but you know perhaps you and i in our different ways we are attracted to the goose or to yeah a... I, after writing it i've now decided the goose is the person who Shoot. is the voice watch of the her. song watch us you'll have Well, so here we are, and it is with enormous um, pleasure that I can uh, play the song The Graveyard of the Outcast Dead in The Graveyard of the Outcast Dead. So here we go. They buried my body on Christmas In the ground by the South River Bank Worked to my death for my very last breath I took Winchester bishops to thank now the church held the keys to the brothel Lit the window with a burning red light While I teased the funds from the pockets of John's The bishop got rich in the night But I didn't fall apart through my years in the dark For my lover I guarded my pure, pure heart And he meets me in the graveyard The graveyard where they made my bed Plants a white flower under cold stars on the grave of the forgotten dead. Now the bishop snuck off to fresh pastures, while my grave was grown over with weeds. No burial plots, just some forget-me-nots for the women they branded unclean. The wasteland was claimed by the city. They covered it with tenement slums For where we've been left had never been blessed And they dug down and built on our bones But every December with frost on his fingers My lover returns, but he still remembers 
spot where they made my bed Lots of white flower under cold stars On the grave of the forgotten dead The sun goes down Uh, you know, I just singing that through now after the conversation we've had, it's just very clear to me that this song is a conversation between John Crow and the Goose. And I hadn't realized that until I read the mysteries and I talked to you today. But the characters who, for me, in this song were slightly unclear as to who exactly it was, and I now know exactly who they are, and it's a wonderful gift. So thank you for that. Thank you, Frank, for sorting it out for me. <laughs> Been puzzling it for 23 years. Well, there we go. <laughs> I have to say that one of my favourite things about making this podcast, having written the album, is being able to go on location and play the songs in, in the places that they're about, which we've been able to do with some of the tracks. And um, to sit in the graveyard itself, uh, which is a really mystic place and it has a real atmosphere to it, as we said in the conversation with John, uh, to sit there and to play the song really felt special and, and there was a real atmosphere and it was a wonderful thing to be able to do. It's one of the highlights of this podcast and of my career as a songwriter, if I'm honest. So I'd like to say a big thank you to John Constable for the conversation in the graveyard. So if you're enjoying the podcast, you can subscribe and review wherever it is you get your podcast. That really helps us get the word out there. So please do uh, click subscribe and leave a review. Uh, you can find my song, Graveyard of the Outcast Dead, wherever it is you get your music these days. And my album, No Man's Land, is available for pre-order. Please come back for the next episode, which is about one of the best-known women who I've written about on this album, but at the same time, one of the most mysterious. She was an exotic dancer who was accused of spying for the Germans during the First World War. She's called Matahari, which translates from the Malay language as the sun, or quite literally, the eye of the day. This episode of Tales from No Man's Land was produced by Hayley Clark. The executive producer was Peggy Sutton. Additional production was done by Paul Smith, Steve Ackerman, Josh Gibbs and Charlie Kaplow. Tales from No Man's Land is produced by me, Frank Turner, Extra Mile Recordings and something else.